been going through this series, I've pretty much explained just about everything except for the goats. The goats have been in an email, the goats have been in a bulletin every Sunday, the goats have been uh, multiple different places, but I've never talked about the goats. Uh, we, we've explained the poster that that's Hebrew for the first uh, five books of the Old Testament in the beginning for, for Genesis, and then, you know, growing down. And so the middle one, Baikra, is the book of Leviticus, which means, and he called. Um, but we have the goats this Sunday, as Lisa read them. Kelly, when I first pulled this image up, which is the same one that's in the bulletin, just in color, uh, was like, those goats are cute. I was like, well, things do not turn out well for either of these goats in the, uh, in the book of Leviticus. So while they are cute, they are, uh, say goodbye. Um, uh, they're the goats that are offered in this, uh, in this sort of story, that, or story but ritual that, that Lisa read for us today. Um, and I think, it, as we've talked, it sort of makes up the center of the book of Leviticus, this, this story, this passage. And you can see that this is such a pinnacle thing. Up until now, you know, we've had instructions about sort of random offerings and Thanksgiving offerings and offerings you, you should do when you sort of do something wrong or offend God or become unclean. But none of them were like, what, what would happen in the larger scheme of things? What would cleanse everyone? What about all those incidental minor things like, like I might eat uh, something that touched something that was unclean, or I might have um, come in contact with something that was unclean and didn't know it. What's going to happen with all that? And so this ritual is one that seeks to sort of talk about like what is going to make all these people um, clean again. So this is this ritual is sort of their New New Year's Day ritual as well. Um, and so Jesus, or so these goats and these these rituals sort of symbolize this new start and this new way of sort of getting reset as a people. Um, but the first thing I wanted to sort of talk about today is, is this is Jesus is not the goat, which is like, that's not true, because Matt's told us through origin almost every Sunday that every sacrifice in Leviticus is somehow recapulated or redone in Jesus Christ. But the point I want to say about why we might not want to rush to think about Jesus as the goat most clearly is because in the New Testament, Jesus is called most often the Lamb, which is the passage that Don read for us today. And we, as, as 21st century North American Christians, we have this temptation to really see Jesus and only his atonement, sort of he dies for us as a sacrifice for our sins, which is true. But that becomes sort of our predominant story of what Jesus does. He dies for us because of our sins. The interesting part about it is Jesus doesn't die on... This is a, how many Jewish holidays can you name? Like, the one that most people can name is Hanukkah, which isn't actually in our Bible. It's a later tradition for them. There's seven of them. But Jesus doesn't die on Yom Kippur. He doesn't die on this day with the goats, the Day of Atonement. He dies on the day of the Passover. And not only that, the, the meal that he sort of blesses for us, he says that this bread is my body broken for you, and this cup is my blood which is shed for you. And we go, that, that blood is for the forgiveness of our sins. But if you think about, and this is going back to last year when we were doing the book of Exodus, when you think about the Passover ritual, the Passover ritual is more about freedom. It's more about escaping slavery than it is about the forgiveness of sins. 
The New Testament uses both these images, so don't get me wrong. But I, what I want to draw out is that, like, at least for us, we should at least become more and more aware of what's going on with these images of animals, is that Jesus is, is not our goat, but our lamb. Um, most often in our minds. And when we think of that, we should think of this journey of these people who live in slavery. And the way that the New Testament will talk about this is that as we as a people, as the Jews are rescued from Egypt, literal slavery, so we as Christians through our baptisms are rescued from the slavery of sin and death and destruction. And what happens with that lamb's blood is it's painted over our doors and then we're released into the desert where God takes care of us and it becomes freedoms for us. And so we can have this temptation to make um, sort of what Jesus does as the Lamb exactly what happens in this, this day, this Yom Kippur day. But I think it's important for us to remember that when we talk about Jesus or when we talk about communion, particularly with multiple images from the New Testament, they're actually pushing us to making a new people who are free from the slavery of sin and death. And that's that, that, I think, empowers us more in life. So as the blood covers our sins, which is the truth, so too we are also brought to a new place. So as we are buried with him in death, so we are raised to new life. <laughs> so we are brought out through the waters of baptism to the promised land where we reside with God, sort of the way that that works out in New Testament logic. So Jesus is not our goat. The second one, which I had to do, is Jesus is our goat. But does anybody know what goat like that means? Jamie's greatest, like, of greatest of all time. It's just uh, when David and I were talking about this, it was like, we're talking about how Jesus isn't the goat. And, and David was like, well, he really is the goat. And I didn't know what David meant. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like the rappers use it. The greatest of all time. Um, Jesus is uh, the greatest of all time. I thought that would be more funny. It was really funny when it came to me. I was like, this is, uh, Jesus is the greatest of all time. The goat. Um, in basketball, it's LeBron. I don't want to hear anything. And, Rap, it's Kanye, I don't want to hear anything. So next, um, as, as people on Twitter say, don't at me, don't at me, uh, don't respond to that. Jesus is the goat, which is really the heart of today's sermon, is how does this, this sort of bizarre and odd ritual here in Leviticus 16 tell us something about the work that God does in Jesus Christ? And so the first thing I think we want to do is sort of look at the story a little bit closer, the the ritual is that is that it jumps back to the deaths of Aaron's sons, which we talked about. And this stretch between uncleanliness and cleanliness and, and what's sacred and profane and holy and common, actually we talked about how it has a lot to do with life and death. And in the ancient Israelite line, many of the things, even the food laws can go to things that deal in death or represent death. And what that's what makes them unclean. And what actually this is, this space is about is life. And so the contact that you can have with death is actually what makes you unclean. And to bring that into the space of life is to sort of create a rupture. And so this life sort of radiates from this place. Well, these two sons of Aaron's have died in this place. And so one of the things that comes right off the bat is how are we going to reconcile this? How are we going to, to bring life back to the temple? But it doesn't become just this, we do it because Aaron's sons died here, but it becomes this ritual that resets everything. Now, we talked about how if you willfully sin against God, um, there's this, uh, the, the thing I was, uh, the best way I had to explain this was without using anything that I shouldn't use, was when I learned Romeo and Juliet in fifth grade, she told us what, like, biting your thumb at somebody meant. Um, and then she told us if we ever did it, we would 
be in tension. Because I think about that now, I think that's a little dumb. But um, if you're somebody who bites your thumb at God, if you willfully sin, if you go into these things, if you're somebody who said, I know I shouldn't have done that, but I've done that, the first 10 chapters didn't leave a lot of room for you to get back into God's good graces. There was a little bit of a, of a way you can interpret some of the words that like, you could say it was, it was sort of committed in mission, that you didn't really mean to do it. But what this one does, that it says, even if you're mad at God, even if you've alienated yourself from God and purposely made choices that, that sort of pollute the atmosphere of the camp around this temple, this sacrifice covers it all. Just one of my favorite things about this is to say that, like, no matter how much you don't think you can get right back with God, God does it anyways. Um, there is a day, there is a time and a space, no matter how far you think you are or how far you push yourself off. There's actually a place where, where even you are renewed back to space with God. Even those people who have willfully sort of uh, bit their thumb at God find themselves renewed back to the place with God. And so this, this day, it becomes known for them as like the day of days or the Sabbath of Sabbaths. This is sort of the pinnacle of the Jewish calendar. And this is this day where they're all sort of renewed back from the sins that they have committed in, in ignorance, intentionally, in just about every way they're brought back to life with God. What happens is, is that Aaron is, is called to gather these two goats from the tribe and the tribe and a ram for a bull for himself. And he offers up the bull to clean himself and his household. And then the first, uh, I love that God doesn't trust Aaron to choose the goats either. He has them throw lots to see which goat gets sacrificed and which one goes off into the wilderness. And bad news, both goats die, or good, good news, but neither one of them is going to survive. But, but God doesn't even let them choose this because that would make them think it's their thing. And so they throw lots for these goats, and one of these goats is brought into the temple, is brought in back into this place with God through his, his blood, which is his life. And we've talked about how in Leviticus 17, it says, for in the blood there is life. And so if you want to bring the life of someone to some place, you bring their blood. And so this first goat is sacrificed and then brought into the temple. And the thing that we talk about with sin is sin is kind of like pollution in a sense. Around this, uh, around this encampment, sin is what sort of begins to defame the image. Now, this is another nerdy literature reference, so I've got Ray and Kim with me, but nobody else maybe. Uh, has anybody read the, the Dorian Gray story? Um, the, it's the story by Oscar Wilde in which this guy gets a portrait and so that whatever he does and however he ages doesn't show on him but it shows on the portrait this is somewhat the Israelites relationship to the temple because their sins don't really show on them, they don't become these things but what it's saying is that the thing that represents them to the world that they're supposed to keep holy that's what bears the marks of an echo and so as they create this, this sin and do this in their life they actually begin to to pollute the holy temple. And so what Aaron does is he brings the goat's blood into the holy temple to, to sort of cleanse it and start it all over again. He brings um, some smoke, too, to sort, of, to sort of not look upon the Lord. That's what his, his sons, we think, maybe died from. Is to, he, doesn't, he goes all the way into the most holy of holies, and he puts some smoke up there so he's not to look at it directly. It creates some sort of veil for him. Um, and he brings the life of that goat there. The second goat, he lays his hands over. And this is the interesting detail. He uses both hands on this goat. Um, in the other sacrifices, 
the person always weighs one hand on the goat as an identifying, like sort of their life with that animal. So the blood that's spilled from that animal is, is meant to sort of figuratively be their blood, and the life that's brought up and changed is figuratively supposed to be their blood. So this is two hands on the animal, which suggests something else is going on here, because this goat is going to become sin for the people. And then Aaron is to confess to them all the sins and all the wickedness of the community is to, to the goat. He's supposed to confess them. And I was thinking, how long would that take? Um, how long would it take to, to confess all of that to this goat? And, and I had looked up what, what tradition says he said to the goat, and it was, it was short. It was all the wickedness, all this. But it made me think of this prayer I often come back to um, from, from the theologian Stanley Harawas, that it's a good prayer of confession. He says, Gracious God, humble us for the violence of your love so that we are able to know and confess our sins. And this is the, the line that made me think of this passage. Is, we want our sins to be interesting, but God forgive us they are so ordinary. Envy, hatred, Meanness, pride, self-centeredness, laziness, boredom, lying, lust, stinginess, and so on. You have saved us from, and so on, to be a royal king, able to witness to the world that the powers that made us such ordinary sinners have been defeated. So capture our attention with the beauty of your life, that the ugliness of sin may be seen as just that, ugly. God, how wonderful it is to be captivated by you. Essentially, what Aaron could say to the goat is these people for this time have wanted their sins to be so exceptional. But as you know, God, they are so ordinary. They're so the same things that have always been done. It's not all, there's not really new ways to sin. They're just sort of the same thing over and over again. And so he speaks to the goat those things. And another appointed person is to bring that goat out into the wilderness and sort of sacrifice it there. And Aaron goes and does his sacrifice, and then he comes out, and they both wash themselves and both sort of have this offer to say that this is this new beginning for them. This is this new creation. This is this new day. It's sort of how this ritual works. But there's a question of how does this connect us to Jesus? I mean, there's the first way of thinking about this is this is one of, we looked at what Aaron wears on a regular day, what Aaron wears on a regular day is like a gold breastplate with diamonds in it and a bunch of other stuff. But on this day, he just wears linens. Now, there's, there's two ways we connect this to Jesus if we want. One is that Jesus is one who sets besides the glory of God to become human. He sets aside being like God to take up flesh and residency among us. Aaron is clothed in this, this, this day in these linens for things that come from the ground. And Jesus comes here and lives in this space. He passes, um, the second thing is that he, he parts the curtain and goes into the most holy of holies. There's lots of ways to think about this with Jesus too. That Jesus is one who parts the curtain between life and death for us, so that we can enter into life. But not only that, if you remember in two Gospels, when Jesus sort of cries out in the cross, it says this curtain is torn. So it's not only that we can move into access with God, but that God can move towards us when this, when this curtain is torn through Jesus. That, that God's Spirit sort of comes out into the world in a different way when it was behind that curtain. So Jesus is one who sort of passes through that as, as, the Abram, as, the, 
as a priest like Aaron. And, and that's one of the things I should mention, I guess, is that um, Jesus is not just the goat. He's, he's the priest. But he's different. And this is one of the things that's notable about this is that Aaron has to offer a big bowl for himself to be able to go. It's the biggest offering on this day. He has to offer a large animal to be able to go into the Holy of Holies to cleanse his, his, his household and himself. But what's different about Jesus, and, and the letter to Hebrews points this out very helpfully, is Jesus only is not one without sin, so he needs no bowl. But as the great high priest, he offers his own blood to be able to enter into that space. And so he has two functions there, is that he is one who lives without sin, so he can essentially just walk in, is Hebrews' point. But he's not a priest that just walks in. He actually spreads his own blood. He doesn't use a bowl or another animal. He uses his own blood to go into that place. It's through his bloodshed that he enters there. The fourth is that he's, he's driven this second goat and this person goes outside the camp. This is another lesson from the book of Hebrews is that Jesus too suffers outside the camp for us as people. Jesus himself is pushed out by the world. In a moment we're going to read sort of a little passage about sin, but it says that the world that he claims claims him. He allows us himself to be pushed out to the margins. He allows himself to die in the, in the foreign place. And the last one is that cloud that Aaron throws in there, is that, that what we know as a mystery now becomes fully known is what the New Testament says. What, what Aaron is sort of disguising himself from and trying not to be drawn into, we're supposed to know more now. Even in that famous passage, often read at weddings, which I don't know what they do with this part of weddings, that though we know in part now, someday we shall be fully known. That what's offered, being offered to us in Jesus is that we will be fully known through this thing. Um, we know in part, we see through the smoke we throw up so that we don't look to directly to God, but someday we shall look fully there. But there's one thing I just wanted to close with, and it's a little bit longer, so don't hold me to like the finishing right away. Um, is uh, I hate it when speakers do that, and then they go on 10 minutes. So I try to be honest when I'm speaking. Um, <laughs> is that one goat, the way the temple is laid out, goes to the east and goes further and further into holiness, goes, goes with his blood all the way into the temple. He ascends sort of to be with God, that one that is chosen by lots. And the other one goes further and further into decreation and chaos, goes deeper and deeper and further into the disorder and dysfunction of what the world is in the Israelite mind. And what we have in Jesus is one who does both those movements as well. Jesus is the movement that ascends towards God and the one that moves out towards the wilderness. The one who, who becomes sin for us is the way that the book of Corinthians puts this, is that he literally becomes sin, though he didn't have sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. And so there's this passage in this book, which I think is good, the book is. Uh, this passage is great, though, because I think it's, it does a great job at explaining how Jesus is becoming sin for us. Get comfortable. It's a little long. This is daylight finds him in the procession as he moves towards the, crowd, or the cross. But this time, no one could mistake him for a king. He's stumbling along under the weight of his own instrument of execution a big wooden thing he can hardly lift, with an escort of the empire soldiers. 
Bystanders have come blinking out of the lodgings where they spent the festival night. Don't see their hopes or even the possibility of their hopes parading by. They see their disappointment. They see their frustration. They see everything in themselves that is too weak or too afraid to confront the strapping paratroopers. And much more, and, and much, and much though they hate the soldiers, they hate him more for his pathetic slide into victimhood. Word of his loose living, his impiety, his pleasure in bad companies goes around in whispers. And just look at him. There's something disgusting about him, don't you think? Something that makes you squirm inside, something furious. He's so pale and sickly looking with that dry blood along his neck. He looks like a pedophile being led away by the police. He looks like something from under a rock as if he doesn't deserve the daylight. He's a blot on the new day. Someone kicks him as he goes by and loose. Down he goes, flat on his nose, with the cross pinging him like a struggling hussy. And let's face it, it's funny. Jesus, as he calls him here by his Jewish name, Yeshua, is a joke. He is less a messiah, more a patch of something nasty and unredeemed. And as he struggles on, he recognizes every roaring, jeering face. He knows our names. He knows our histories. And since as well as being a weak and frightened man, he's also the love that makes the world, to whom all times and places are equally present. He isn't just feeling the anger and spite and unbearable self-disgust of this one crowd on this one Friday morning in Palestine. He's turning his bruised face toward the whole human crowd, past and present and in to come, and accepting everything we have to throw them, everything we fear, everything we deserve ourselves. The doors of his heart are wedged open wide, and in rushes the whole pestilent flood, the vile and rolling tide of cruelties and failures and secrets. Let me take you, let me take that from you, he's saying. Give that to me instead. Let me carry it. Let me be to blame instead. I am big enough. I am wide enough. I am not what you were told. I'm not your king or judge. I'm the father who longs for every last one of his children. I'm the friend who will never leave you. I'm the light behind the darkness. I'm the shining your shame can't extinguish. I'm the ghost of love in the torture chamber. I am change and hope. I am the refining fire. I'm the door where you thought there was a wall. I am what comes after deserving. I am the earth that drinks up the blood stain. I am the gift without cost. I am, I am, I am. Before the foundations of the world, I am. But it is killing him all the same. He never promised that you would be safe if you tried to live without fear. The soldiers lead him out the city gate, and laboriously slipping and sliding with trembling blows from the spear butts to motivate him. They drive him up the small cone of Skull Hill, where death sentences are carried out. They tie him onto the cross and plant it upright. It's the empire's punishment for rebellious slaves, slow and nasty by design designed to be a spectacle of days-long suffering and gasping by passers-by. On a cross, you choke to death, when you're finally too tired to heat your own weight up to take your next breath. Yeshua's cross has a sign over and over his head. Here's your king, it says, in all languages of the province. The chief priest didn't want it, but the government has appointed him. And he hangs there. He twists against the rope to snatch against the precious air, which whistles in his flattened nose. He cannot do anything deliberate about it. The staining of the whole weight on his outstretched arms hurts too much. 
The pain fills him up. This place is thought as much for him as it has for everyone else who has ever been stuck in one of these horrible circumstances, or for anyone who dies in pain from the world's grim arsenal of possibilities. And yet he goes on taking it in. It is not what he does. It is what he is. He is an all-open door to sorrow, suffering, guilt, despair, or everything that can't be escaped. He doesn't even try to escape it. He turns to meet it and claims it all as his own. This is mine now, he is saying, and embraces it all that is left in him. Each dark act, each drooping memory, as if it were something precious, as if, if it were itself a loved child tottering homeward on the road. But there is so much of it. So many injured children, so many locked rooms, so much lonely anger, so many bombs in public places, so much vicious zeal, so many bored teenagers at roadblocks, so many drunk girls at parties someone thought they could have a little fun with, so many jokes that go too far, so much ruining greed, so much sick ingenuity, so much burned skin. The world he claims, claims him. It burns and stings, it splinters and gouges, it locks, locks round and drags him down. For me, it's a, it's a powerful summary of how Christ becomes sin for us on the cross and how he goes as the goat out to the place of decreation, the place of order and chaos. And what awaits for us as we join him in that movement is the movement also towards the temple, also towards communion with God. It's for him and for our sake that he became sin for us, for our salvation, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is one who makes both movements out to the wilderness and into the holiness of God so that we might join him there as well. Let us pray. God of life, you've come and made a way for us to come near you in this world that often seems bent on death. You've given first the Jews a lasting ordinance to celebrate the year every year by cleansing and going towards life, by taking their darkness and their sin out into the desert. This was the start of a new year for them. And yet for us as Christians, through your Son, Jesus Christ, you've made the same sacrifice of yourself to give us access to what is most holy and to also take that which disforms and disfigures us away, to bring it out into the wilderness. God, as much as we want our sins to be interesting, you rescue us from that so that we may be captured by your beauty and be assigned to the world that though while it is bent on death and while it may seem like death has the last word, the erection, resurrection, there's a step towards life. Be with us now. And guide us towards your holy temple. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen.